I have appreciated spending time with Brother Averett, and uh, he's got a tremendous testimony, and the Lord is the Lord's hand is on his life, and uh, I know that uh, I've I've only known him physically uh, since yesterday, but we've been Facebook friends for a little while. Thank you, Facebook, for that. Can any good come out of Facebook? Well, there's a little bit in there. Uh, And so, I mean, uh, I know that uh, he's probably going to share his heart. So would you just open up and let the word of the Lord come in and minister to us today? And uh, we can get something out of this. Everyone in the building, show of hands, raise your hand if you don't need anything. <laughs> Got you. <laughs> we all need the Lord, don't we? And so I believe that uh, that it's a good opportunity, a good moment to receive what the Lord would speak to us and be open to what He has. And let's respond. Can we respond today with with obedience to the Lord and however he leads us. Brother, Brother Abert, why don't you come and minister to us today and uh, let the Lord use you. Everyone say God bless Brother Abert. intimidates me sometimes all the time it's his faithfulness that intimidates me because I'm not faithful not all the time not like he is you know and I see it I see his faithfulness I've not been faithful to him anywhere near like he's been faithful to me. But he doesn't stop. And the world's not faithful. Spouses sometimes aren't faithful. Kids aren't faithful. Jobs aren't faithful. Sometimes ministers aren't faithful. And the people you need to be faithful most, they let you down. Not Jesus. He's just so faithful. And I would sing of it with every breath I'm able, but I can't sing, so I just talk. And write. And post. If I say anything... from this pulpit today that is not true absolutely true let God strike me dead right now and I say that because of this Brother Bates you've you've seen what's about to happen 
because of your experience in ministry. Pastor, you have too. God gave me this sermon two months before Pastor ever called me. We don't compare notes. He didn't tell me what he's preaching. Can you turn me down just a little bit? I'm echoing. It's, it's my fault. I might be the only preacher that don't like the sound of his own voice. But... No, I'm just kidding. We don't compare notes. He didn't tell me what he was preaching today. He didn't tell me. I didn't tell him what he didn't ask me to tell him all my scriptures. This happens sometimes, though. And it means, and I don't say it lightly, Sometimes it, it's amazing how the Bible works. You could preach a sermon and an 83-year-old saint that's been faithful to church her whole life is convicted and affected by it as much as a 21-year-old crack addict that has just come into church. And that's how the word is, though. And then it'll lead an 8-year-old to repentance in the Holy Ghost in the same sermon. It's amazing. So I always approach preaching like, well, I don't even care who it's aimed for. This is not my word anyway. God, I'll, I'll preach it and God will do what he wants to with it. I don't think, oh, I, th I bet that person back there needs this word. Because I don't know how much more. Uh, I know I need it every time I preach. That's all. That's the only person I know. This word is for the whole church today because the, this church is at a, not a crossroads but a mile marker, maybe a crossroads. And God is trying to encourage and prompt the church for revival. This church specifically today. Peter, Peter said, I'm not writing to you anything new. I'm just reiterating. I'm just, I'm just confirming it to you. I'm not trying to tell you all anything new, but this is a word from God for this church, for this day. Because he wants to do something great in this town, through this church. I just tell Bible stories, talk about the Bible. God is good. They were quiet. It was late evening. The sun had all but disappeared. The shadows grew darker and deeper. The only sounds, the fluttering of the torches, rustle of robes, and the scuff of sandals on dirt. They had a lot to think about this night. He had spoken to them strangely, as usual, and they were trying to digest his words. He was leaving soon. One was about to betray him, eat his flesh, drink his blood, and he washed their feet. When Judas had left, and a new commandment, love each other, just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And they did this garden many times. 
a place and moment of quiet, a place of calm away from the constantly pressing crowds, the hostile assaults of the religious leaders, the unending needs and demands of the people, a place to talk, a place to rest. But tonight, tonight was different. A heaviness and overwhelming sense of anticipation of the unknown. Something was coming. Peter, James, and John followed him a little further into the garden and he tells them to wait. He says to the three, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay there. He was going off a little to be alone. To wait there and to pray, he was going on. And he walks alone into the garden to face eternity. Everything from let there be light to this very moment. It all came down right here. Right then, and the choice he was going to have to make once and for all. What had fallen apart and become sin and death and torment and trials and oppression and weakness and frailty and struggle, it all came to a rest on him right then. The weight of it all, the knowledge of the cup he was to drink, all the wrath God had in store for the punishment and pavement of sin was distilled into this bitter cup and he was going to have to drink it. And he didn't even know totally what to expect. The effects and results, the pain, the agony, and he had no idea what the taste would be. No clue. Not once in his life had he even sipped from the cup. He had not had the opportunity to gradually build up a taste for it. He was clean and spotless and innocent and pure and holy and he was the best thing that ever walked on this earth and it was coming here in a garden and the plans and intents of God had been tossed aside in a garden before after the first one had failed and strayed but this lamb does not stray he is here for one purpose and one purpose only and this lamb does not stray Lamb is faithful. Every man or woman who had drawn breath since the first had strayed, every lamb had been lost and had left the fold, but not this lamb. Not this precious, spotless lamb. And it settled on him, and he falls to the earth, overwhelmed, apprehensive, scared, filled with a dread we will never know. And he falls to the earth and collapses. This is in the Bible. He gets up a little later. He goes to the disciples, but they're sleeping. His friends, his closest friends, when he needs them to pray and support them, they're asleep. And he wakes them up and says, couldn't you just pray for me a little while? And they're embarrassed. And he does it again, and they fall asleep again, and he goes off. And we talk about the lamb not opening its mouth. One led to the slaughter. And he didn't. He didn't protest it. But don't mean he didn't say, God, please, Father, I know you can do anything. I'm your son. This is his words. I'm not sure what it's going to feel like, and I'm scared, and I don't know what it's going to feel like, and I've never faced your displeasure before, and you said I was your beloved son, and that my life and what I did pleased you. I know you can do anything, so if it's possible that you would, please, Father, just don't make me do it. 
understood what the son asked the father. And he looks up to see an angel, and the angel strengthens him. And I'm not even sure what that means or how he did it. But I know it was the answer he was looking for. But not the one he wanted. The man. And he kept praying because that man wasn't going astray. And Jesus was laying there on the ground in the dirt. It's what the Bible says. The Son of God weeping in his heart. And so feeling like it was being ripped apart because he knew no matter what, he was going to finish what he started. And oh, the agony of my Savior. The Bible says he was praying so hard, his body under so much stress and pain that it looked like he was crying blood or sweating blood. The turmoil and determination that he went through that night. The agony. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if you lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? When he found it, he layeth on his shoulder rejoicing. When he cometh home, he called together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than ninety-nine just persons, which needs no repentance. And he gets up from the ground and goes to his disciples one more time, and they're sleeping again. And he wakes them up and says, It's time, rise, it's time. The one who is coming to betray me is almost here. And they got up and went with Jesus, and now Judas comes to him. And he still calls him friend. The Bible's strange. Even at that point, it calls him one of the twelve. He still had a chance. He could have stopped and changed his mind and turned around and not betray his friend, his Lord and Savior. But Judas doesn't, and there's such a large mob with him, and Soldiers and priests and teachers and elders, and they've all come for Jesus, and they're armed with swords and clubs waiting for the signal. And Jesus asked him, Judas, friend, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The final words Judas ever hears from Jesus. And he does, he betrays him with a kiss. And Jesus asked the mob, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. I am he. And if they had any doubts about who he was before then, they didn't right now. They fell over. And the disciples realize now what's going on. And they're surrounded by the leadership of their people and armed soldiers. And it doesn't matter to Peter at all. And he swings a sword. It could have been Caesar and Peter would have swung that sword. But it's a servant of the high priest and he misses and cuts his ear off and Jesus heals one of his attackers. And they put hands on Jesus. It's the first time that's happened since he's been here. They put hands on him and he lets them. And his disciples, they run off. All of them. 
Jesus could have called down all the angels of heaven to stop this, and he doesn't. So his disciples run, and he's tied up and bound because that's how you bring a lamb to the sacrifice. And they bring him to the house of the leaders of the priests. It's bad, but it's going to get much worse. It's just starting. Peter and one of the other disciples come back, and they follow Jesus in the crowd, and they go in with a mob, and they're standing there watching it happen right there with Jesus off to the side and trying to stay inconspicuous. It's late in the night now, and it's cold, and they've got a fire there in the courtyard, and Peter's standing there with the soldiers who just arrested Jesus, and he's warming his hands with them at the same fire while Jesus is standing right there. And some of the people notice Peter and start asking questions. Hey, aren't you one of the men, one of his disciples? And he denies it, and he's just trying to see what's going on. And the priests and teachers are confronting Jesus on the law and trying to trip him up, and they're angry because they can't, and they start hitting him and spitting on him. Our lamb, they spit on him, mock him, and rip his beard out. And Peter's standing there and sees all of it. And the last thing Peter says to Jesus before the cross was, he doesn't know. And Peter said, I will never deny you. Even if I have to die with you, I will never leave your side, never. And now he has a chance. And he leaves Jesus. Because no one's faithful but Jesus. And it said Jesus saw him. He looked into his eyes. And the last time Peter looks Jesus in the eyes before his death is right there. Can't imagine looking in the eyes of Jesus in that moment. Sometimes I did, though. Peter runs out, runs away, broken. He runs away one more time. And the last thing he hears, the sound that echoes in Peter's ears as he runs away, is Jesus, the lamb, being beaten. His friend, his best friend, his closest friend. Can I tell you that Jesus cried out whenever he was being beaten? He was hurt. He was God and man. He he was thirsty on the cross. Let me tell you, that whip hurt him. He was not impervious to pain. I promise he cried out in pain. He's faithful. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I had lost. I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And they bring Jesus and He's blindfolded and his arms tied to Pilate, and this is the lamb at the altar. And they tell Pilate what they want, and they're lying to him, trying to convince him to execute Jesus, and not just execute, but to crucify, asking for the worst, the most painful, most shameful death penalty they could possibly get to one of their own. And Pilate sends them to Herod, and they mock him, and send him back to Pilate. And Pilate tells the religious leaders, the high priests and teachers and elders. You come to me saying this man was trying to cause an insurrection against the government to overthrow it, but we have questioned him and find no truth in this. And Pilate says, I'm just going to have him punished and I'll release him. 
but I'm not going to pass the death sentence. And they protest and threaten him. And his wife comes to him and says, don't do it. This man has troubled me in my dreams. This righteous man. And he tells him this man is innocent. But y'all have a tradition that I can release a prisoner to you. And he gives them the option between the best and the worst. Barabbas. The man was literally a homegrown terrorist. An insurrectionist. And they chose him over Jesus. The same people who Jesus had just spent years saving, healing, changing their lives, and healing their children, raising their loved ones from the dead. They chose a murderer. And I can't imagine what was going on in Pilate's mind right now. How his heart dropped. The confusion. And he calls for a bowl of water and washes his hands and said he's innocent of the blood, but no one is really innocent of the blood of Jesus. None of us. And the crowd cries out in probably the most profoundly inadvertent, ironic prophecies of all time. The crowd calls out, let his blood be on us and our children. And it was. They just didn't know yet. It's been a long day and a long night and a long day and his arms are tired and he's still tied up and he's hurting and he's been beaten repeatedly and his blood is flowing and he's exhausted and dehydrated and still so far to go. So Pilate sends him over to the military barracks of the Roman soldiers. And they have a scourge, a weapon designed to inflict the most pain without killing someone as possible. A leather whip, multiple straps and bits of bone and metal intertwined into it to rip open flesh. There's ancient descriptions of it, and I've read them, and it's disgusting. And they beat him, and it says this lamb went forward and didn't open its mouth, but I promise he cried out. The Bible is not contradicting itself. He didn't ask them to stop. But the man Christ Jesus was hurting. The scourge is designed, and there's ancient accounts of it, where it will rip the stomach open and your intestines will spill out onto the ground. I'm not trying to be morbid for the sake of shock value, but this... Grace is a dirty business. And his body's in shock and his body arches and contorts while they beat him. And I know from the bottom of my heart that he cried out because he was like us as a man. And they keep beating him and they keep beating him and he cries out and they keep beating him. Again and again. Tearing his body. His blood's just pouring down. And he's flayed alive and bleeding and he's already dying. And he could have called at any moment 10,000 angels. He's the Lord of hosts. The hosts are warriors. But he didn't. I wonder if the angels were up there begging him, waiting to be called. But this lamb doesn't stray and he doesn't call out for the angels to come rescue him. 
His only cries are pain. Echoing through the courtyard, when the soldier stops, he lies there weeping and torn and bloody. And the soldiers bring him his robe and his crown and his staff. And they stand him up as best they can. They put the thorn on his head. Put the crown of thorns on his head. Long thorns. These are not small thorns. The Bible says that you take the staff from him and beat the crown into his head repeatedly. I would have died trying to kill those soldiers. How do you He struck the wall, the place of the skull, Golgotha, the walk to Calvary. And Jesus is carrying the cross the best he can. And he stumbles and he's blind from the blood, and all he can hear is the taunts of the soldiers and the religious leaders and the cries of his mother. And they kneel down on him, holding his arm and his hands and legs into place. And they swing back with a hammer and drive the nails into his arm, through his body. And his body arches, writhing in unspeakable agony. And they hold him that much tighter, and the hammer swings again. Through flesh and tendon into the cross. This bloody work done, they know the proclamation over his head, the proclamation, King of the Jews. And Jesus is lifted up. And the cross drops into place. Not, not on a, we, we have an image of this Calvary on a hill far away. The cross was at eye level on one of the main streets. So everybody could see the shame and humiliation. Mere feet away from the people that walked by. Right there. And the soldiers divided his clothes up in the robe. They gambled for that. And the people walked by seeing the Son of God nailed to his cross. Naked. Exposed. From his mother and friends and strangers. For the whole world to look upon his shame. His blood pouring down. His body looking like the butchered lamb that it was. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us be married. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be married. The people mocked him. They still mock him today. And he was conscious but barely. And he hears the words and he hears our words. And he hears the weeping of his family and the last disciple to stay with him. And he hears the insults of the man crucified next to him. And he cries out for the Father to forgive them. And he tells the thief that repented, you'll be with me in paradise. And he tells Mary and John they're going to be family now. And for John to take care of her. And he fills the Father with drawing from him. 
And he cries out, the loneliest man in the loneliest moment. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And he's silent for a moment, dying this sacrifice near completion. And he cries out in thirst, and they give him vinegar to drink, and he drinks it, and he drinks those last drops and dregs of the cup, the cup of wrath that God would have poured out on every soul that had ever or would ever draw breath, the punishment for every sin that would ever be committed. And it's poison to him, and he never tasted its vile flavor like that. And he drinks it from the Father's cup, and he drains every poisonous drop. And his head drops. He can barely breathe, and he's lost almost every ounce of fluid in his body. And he lifts his head and cries out, It is finished! Silence, no women weeping at his feet. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he bowed his head and died. The lamb had finished the work he came for. Printed these notes. I printed my notes out. I'm going to leave them here for you. You printed out before you preached your sermon this morning. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What kind of shame? God laid aside all power that he had. The word that created time and space and eternity quicker and sharper than two, any two-edged sword robed in flesh. And it, that same word had flung countless stars and planets through the universe. Created life with his word. Had laid waste to cities and planets with his word. Called the dead to life with the word. And he laid it aside. The shame to be tortured and humiliated. He was abandoned by all his friends when they, he needed him most. They denied him to his face and they ran away. Men that he had invested years into had walked with him and talked with him and healed their families and taught him and shared food with him and walked dusty roads and saved their lives during storms and slept on the ground next to him. Huddled around a campfire. We will go to the grave with you and they left him. Jews, Gentiles, prostitutes, rulers, widows, elders, teachers. People he had prayed over and wept over and spent himself to the point of exhaustion. <clears throat> People had felt his virtue flowing into them. Now not crying Hosanna, but crucified him. The shame of it. So much he had done for him, and they left him. He had spent his life literally to save these people, and they left him. How embarrassing that is. How humiliating and shameful for the world to see you invest your time in someone, and they leave you. And they left him. 
completely naked and bloodied in front of his mother and her friends. Shame on every level. All the religious leaders there laughing and taunting and he's nailed, bloody and beaten and crying and groaning and weeping in agony. Naked in front of all the earth and heaven. His shame uncovered and when the father had first confronted man's sin, the first thing he did was cover the shame, but not with this one. He left his shame, the shame of our sin on him and did nothing to cover it. Jesus despised the shame. What shame? All the shame at the cross. He didn't despise it because he was embarrassed. He despised it because he knew that sin had come into the world and caused that shame. Not just his shame. But every shame that comes to the cross. He saw it and despised it. The shame of me, what I've done in my life, my history, my past, what you've done, the times we've failed God, the times we've disappointed our families, the times we've sinned over and over and over and said we're not going to do it again. God, uh, help us, help us. That's the sin he saw, the shame he saw too and despised it because he knew how it made his children feel. It wasn't his plan. He despised the shame. But why did he do it? Because there was something that made him joyful on the other side of that cross. The joy of saving my soul, of saving his child. And how much joy in Luke 15, 7 says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. More than 99 just persons who need no repentance. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. It says, my son was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found, and they began to be married. In verse 10. Here's the first verse God laid in my heart on this. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels. God is up there celebrating, surrounded by his angels, and they can't celebrate because they've never died for a child. And God shows us the illustration. The prodigal's father, and he goes, and they're singing and dancing, and he has everyone around them come and celebrate with him. The angels are standing there and God is in the middle of them. Like David dancing before his people. No shame. Because he saved his child. Us. And he's up there compelling them to sing and dance. That's what the parable shows us. Who cried out with no shame. In celebration, rejoicing, telling all those around him to sing and dance with him. Because who knows better what was saved than the Father? 
The one who knows the value of what was lost. The value of the sheep in the wilderness. The coin that was lost. The child who walked away from life and truth. And came back in Zephaniah 3.17 says... For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. The only time in the Bible that we see God rejoice is when he saves that which was lost. And he rejoices. God rejoices. He created music and songs and instruments. And he rejoices. And we talk about a song the angels cannot sing when we get to heaven. But there's a song that God sings that no one else can sing. A father that saved their child. We're the potter. He's he's the potter. We're the clay. We're formed by his hands. He knows the value of the vessel. And he breathed the life into us in the spirit. And we became the image of our father. And he looked on us like fathers do and had hopes and dreams for us and plans of a life spent with us in love and communion and fellowship. Because like any newborn child, the father looked upon us and saw his own image. But when Adam fell, it tore apart the eternal relationship. It quite literally became a cosmic custody battle for a child. I've seen divorces, we've all seen them, and nothing makes a divorce worse than a custody battle. Doesn't matter how many millions you have, or boats, or cars, or houses. But there's never been a more bitter custody battle than God and the devil fighting over the children. I got scripture for that. Jesus told them, you are the the children of your father, the devil. When we're sinners and separated from Christ, we still have a father. It's just the devil. This is a father. What kind of father wants to steal and kill and destroy his children? That's the kind of father we had before God came and rescued us. He wants to see his children. The devil wants to see his children cast into an eternal fiery pit with him. That's like a dad shooting up his six-year-old with meth. What kind of father would do that? That was our father before God came and rescued us. Because 1 John 3, 1 says, those of you who are saved, we became the children of God. We become the children of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, through repentance and baptism, being filled with the Holy Ghost. That custodial rift has been healed by God, and the child belongs to their rightful father, through the cross. And he knew he would pay whatever price he had to to get his child back. And the irony is that he created the child and set the value of the child and then had to pay for the child through no fault of his own. But he did it because he was saving his children. And what a horrible price in He was despised and rejected and constant sorrow and grief and his own hid from him and He was despised and he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows and he was smitten by God and afflicted for our sins. Beaten and whipped and punched and slapped and wounded for our transgressions. But he paid the price. The divine punishment of our peace was upon him and he had a crown of thorns placed on his head and beaten into the skin and skull, blood flowing 
from every inch of his body. And all the sins put on him and he paid it. He paid the price. The exceeding riches of his grace. That's what the Bible says, the exceeding riches. That's what the Bible says the price was. Every last ounce of wealth that heaven had flowed down the cross to purchase our soul. This is what God is wanting to say today. What worth the soul? And where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And the inverse is just as profoundly true. Where my heart is, that's where my treasure is going to be. All that I treasure is going to be there. I'm not here to tell you anything new. I'm here to confirm it and remind myself. What worth the soul? So hear me, church, and hear me, saint and sinner and backsliders and prodigals and whoever might hear this five years from now, ten years from now. The lost who are sitting in the pews, the faithful lost that are sitting in the pews, the mother and father who have a lost child that you never quit feeding that fatted calf because you know he's going to come back because God told you to. Listen, what worth the soul? I'm here to encourage. The notes were printed out two months ago. The Bible says to sow seed everywhere. Everywhere. It never said to plant it like a nice, neat garden. In rows. Throw it everywhere. And if the birds come to eat the seed, scare them off. When it falls on the rocks, that's okay. This is in the notes. Exactly what you said. God's wanting to tell the church something today. Throw the rocks out. Dig them up. Some people plant. Some people water. Some people grab rocks. Some people pull thorns. Some people scare off birds. Make sure the seed gets pushed down. These are souls. We just saw how much a soul is worth. Our hands are going to get cut and bloody. We're going to get hurt saving souls. We're going to get burned when we reach in and snatch them out of the fire. Have you been burned, brother and sister Bates, saving souls? We have to be willing to spend every last bit of our treasure, our wealth, our time, to save a soul. It matters so much to me, and I cry and weep about it, and I, the conviction, overriding conviction I have with God is, God, please never let me forget, not the price you paid for me, the value you showed me, and the people he used to save my soul, because who knows what a soul is worth, or what a soul can do. My parents walk in the floor and weeping in bed and travailing for me and hours and hours of sleepless nights and heartbroken and stomach and knots. The money and phone calls and texts and begging their friends to keep praying for me. For years, 
Not weeks, not months, for years. They held me and sang to me, a grown man, beaten and broken and a soul wasted and all the promises God gave them about me and the dreams they had and my dad holding my head in his lap in the bathroom because I was passing out and sweating and having a drug overdose. Vomit streaking my beard and all he could do was hold me and I felt his body shake as he wept over me because he valued his soul. The hours my mother prayed for me, I could hear in the other rooms. She valued a soul. And my grandmother, when I laid there, I couldn't speak for months. I couldn't say a word. The devil had me broken. And I just laid there groaning in agony, spiritual turmoil. And she just held my hand and kept saying, Jesus. And she saved a soul. And it took years. All my friends and family who had prayed for me. I didn't come straight back to church when I came back. I grew up in this, and I thought it would take one good altar call. Sometimes that's enough for some people. I'm an overachiever. I'm really good at sinning. It took years, and pastors, multiple pastors, and churches, and seasons, and some of them were hurt and disappointed because I failed and failed. And some planted and some watered and some moved stones out and some pulled thorns. And I heard all of them. And most of them never saw the increase. God is not mocked. What you sow is going to be reaped, whether or not you reap it or not. He says, pray for laborers. The fields are white with harvest. The laborers aren't the ones who have planted those fields. Don't quit pouring into souls. Don't quit reaching for the lost. I'm a soul that was lost. God is wanting to do something mighty in this city, in this region this church. Musicians can come. It says those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy carrying sheaves with them. Don't give up. And I know y'all haven't. And I know y'all won't. And the church, the, this, this community needs to see this church. They need to see their love for souls. And they do. But don't give up. What if somebody hadn't reached out for me or you? That's scary, isn't it? We were in some bad places. What if somebody hadn't reached out to me? What if somebody gave up after a week? And you're right. You have to have boundaries. You have to protect your home. You have to protect your family. That's what makes it tough. 
God hasn't saved your soul yet. He wants to right now. If you have a child or family member or loved one or friend that's been backslidden, stand in for them today. We'll pray with you. Pray for them. God is wanting to change eternities today. He's wanting to change and continue the path of this church to strengthen y'all. He's wanting to save your families that are lost. I can't imagine one person in here not having a lost loved one. It's a message of hope. I tried to, and I'm ill-equipped Ill- to, to speak on it as good as I wish I could, but I just want to speak hope and let you know that no sinner was worse than me. No one was more far gone than I was. But people like y'all prayed for me, kept praying for me, kept praying for me. My family, my grandmother, my mom and dad, and brothers and sisters and friends. And God will restore the loss to you. Because he paid the ultimate price for a soul. And that's what he wants more than anything. And his word came down here and the word does what it accomplishes, what it tries to do. And that's, it says he came to save the lost don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't let the devil lie to you. If you have a need or a loved one that you want to stand in for today, or if you need need God to save your soul, you can come down to the front. Nobody's going to embarrass you or make a big scene out of it. But God is willing to, to save souls today. <laughs> 